Frank, it's official. My machine, my computer, my main development machine is falling apart. Oh, no. Is this the like one that you're always so proud of because it was very expensive? I think we did a whole episode on um, putting together our own machines. Is it that kind of machine or is it a laptop? No, this is the home-built machine. Now, it is not necessarily expensive when you compare it to a Mac Pro. Oh, right. The bar has been set. You know, the the best thing about the Mac Pro coming out is it's made me feel really good about my iMac Pro. I'm like, wow, I saved a lot of money. <laughs> you did. You did. Except for the problem with the iMac Pro is that you can't really upgrade it, correct? You can put an external no, GPU. Yeah. but I guess, yeah, but the external GPU I got is slower than the one built into it. The saddest thing that I realized was, A, I should have got the faster GPU. B, I should have got a bigger hard drive. You know, you always think, I don't need that much hard drive. You need all the hard drive, every bit that you can get. Well, if you remember, if you go back to Merge Conflict episode 82, when you bought the, I don't know if that's the version of the number of it, but I'm going <laughs> to okay. say it is. So if you go back to that episode, you'll you'll remember me telling you that you should have bought, you should have spent more money on more RAM, more hard drive space, and just all the money. Give Apple all your money. That that's the right. that's the yeah. answer. The now, goal. <laughs> the goal. The goal is to give Apple all your money. Now, I will say this, Frank, at least the stand was included. Yes. Um, and actually it wasn't tall enough, so I stacked some books and put it on top of some books. It's perfect this way. Who needs a God, how expensive is it five thousand or six thousand? The or, no, the stand I'm is sorry, a thousand. the stand is a thousand. I'm sorry. So the monitor would be like seven thousand with the stand. Yeah, correct. So, yeah, yeah, pretty much. Well, because yeah. the stand, I assume you can't use it for any other monitor. But I, I do hope we'll have some good YouTube videos of people buying stands and just holding up amazing objects with it, <laughs> creating their own stands. Well, I may need to get a new Mac Pro because. I was doing some live streaming recently, uh, and the, the, no, no one saw it because it was off film, but I hopped on to Skype, started up a Skype call, and all of a sudden, everything went out, all of my <laughs> webcams. Right now, I have two webcams because we're actually live streaming this, but I have two webcams, one for you, one for Twitch, and everything went out, and my computer blue screened 100% in some error message that I have never seen before in my Ooh. entire life. Yeah. I thought mm-hmm. they um, got rid of or did they clean up or did they improve the blue screen experience? How is the modern blue screen experience, James? The modern blue screen experience is exceptional. <laughs> okay. Because That's probably an, ex- an exception occurred on your machine. Oh, you see, have I'm not good at puns. Phew, in wow. the kernel. In the kernel. So when you but get I'm it, bump. there's a very like there's a frowny face. There's like something is going wrong with your computer. There's a QR code that you can scan. That has the error code to a help page that will help you. And then what it does is it sits back and it collects a bunch of stuff from your machine, which who knows where that goes. I'm sure it gets reported (laughs) somewhere to somebody at some time. Uh, And then your computer reboots. You don't have to wait until that's over necessarily, but you probably should. seems like, you know, I'm dog fooding my own product here. I work for the company, so you should probably do that. Are you? But you're not running a beta Windows, I hope. Normal. No, no, no. Just normal Windows. But here's what happened is my computer turned back on. Of course, I didn't go to the help page, so I don't actually know if it was helpful at all. I assume maybe possibility lower than average, right? Because there's so mm-hmm. many errors that could go wrong. Yeah. And I turned back on my computer and none of my webcams are working at okay. all. So these are USB devices all just plugged into the back of this computer or you got some complicated setup? That's what you would think. Uh, Very close. And I'll make this a shorter story. But (laughs) I have these beautiful monitors. And I said, well, these monitors have USB ports in them. But you need to do that crazy USB to to USB. So I had two webcams plugged into a single monitor. And they weren't turning on. I was like, did I break the monitor or something? I don't know. So I I plugged in a phone. And that didn't charge. I go, oh, no. Like, I was just maybe it was something else. So then I took the webcam off and I plugged it into the front of my computer and the webcam worked. And I was like, I'm, I'm so excited, James. This means you're going to buy that $6,000 monitor. It doesn't That's what this means. This is going to well, be the punchline. I'm way ahead of you. Well, so it gets better because then I said, well, did I break the monitor? Like, what happened? So I take the the USB cord that's in the back of my computer and I move it to the unknown working USB port on the front of my computer that I tested the webcam on. 
and everything starts working again. I blew the USB port that is in the back of the computer that's on the MOBO, but only a segment of it. Like it's gone. Great. Wonderful, James. Bravo. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I don't know how so, I did it. So it's now I'm running webcams off of multiple USB ports, not all in the monitor. So I'm assuming that something like obviously terrible happened and then boom, game over. And it just didn't know how to handle all of a sudden missing USB ports from the motherboard. USB is simultaneously the best thing in the world and the absolute worst thing. So attached to this computer, I have four USB-A ports, four USB-C ports, something like that. Each one of those has a port expansion USB device attached to it. And those are all running off to a thousand different devices and everything under the sun. And when something doesn't work, it's the worst. I literally had it today, too. Um, I blew out my own USB hub. So look, we're both in good company with each other here. Uh, USB, USB. All right. Well, that's my story, Frank. But I was listening to a little story from one of our best friends of the podcast, really true friend of the show, Mr. Craig Federighi. I don't know if you've heard of <laughs> Craig Federighi at all. Well, I, I know he just sends me emails all the time. So it's just I try to ignore him a little bit because, I mean, it just gets to be a little bit much after a while. Yeah, he's a fan of your hats. So I get it. You know, trying to get <laughs> that swag. Good hat. <laughs> That's right. Uh, so I was listening to Mr. Craig Federighi on the talk show. I don't know if you know about Mr. John Gruber. He has a little podcast. Tiny. Just, it's just underground podcast called the talk show. You know, I feel a little bad because I missed that episode that you're referring to, but I was listening to the episode this week with Jason Snell, where they were reviewing the episode that you were listening to. Let's get meta here, James. <laughs> yeah, I haven't listened to that one yet, but it is a very long, like two and a half hour live show recording. So it's a different feel to it, but there's a lot. They cover all things from Apple and we've been, you know, been going through. We did our, our WWDC recap. We did iPad OS last week, which was a lot of fun. They talked a lot about that. And then they started to go a lot deeper into Swift UI. And I've also been noticing a lot of people experimenting with Swift UI. I know you've experimented with Swift UI. It's not C Sharp. It's not .NET uh, at all, if, but it is mobile. And you know, we like to talk about mobile stuff and we can always contemplate if it should be C Sharpified or not. And there's an open GitHub issue. So maybe someone's doing something, no inside baseball. But I wanted to start with Swift UI this week from a perspective that you and I are not swift slash swift ui masters is that correct absolutely um there was a point in my life where i loved the language spec it's the same thing that what actually got me first into c sharp was it was the first well-written language spec i'd ever written mm. i think apple did a really good job with theirs too and so i got kind of interested in it but I only know the language from that kind of like I read a book on it, academic perspective. Technically, I've written a couple libraries in it, but constantly Googling and Stack Overflowing the entire time that I do. So I can technically write some Swift code, but I am not at all fluent in any imaginable way. I can I can read the Swift code. Uh, I've been sure, reading. Yeah. I've been Googling quite a bit. Some getting more. I've been getting really into some iOS APIs recently and some of the libraries I've been creating. So I've been doing a lot of stack overflowing and I am seeing a lot more of here's the objective C, here's the, the stable Swift ABI stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, it looks it's it's not it's not my super cup of tea, but it's a lot better than the objective C from what I, I've seen and some of the niceties there. So I actually like the Swift itself. Um, some of the nice things that it does, right? And we've talked about the different languages. I like some of the stuff F Sharp does. I like the stuff C Sharp does a lot. Mm -hmm. I like some of the stuff that Kotlin does. I like, I like, you can always like a little bit, but I don't know if mashing all of those together into a single language would be a good idea, but I do like a, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. But, you know, this it's crazy because with Swift itself, they've always just sort of, that's the new language you're coding it with. But you're still coding against UI kit or app kit or watch kit. Watch kit? Watch, watch kit UI? Kit. Yeah, watch OS. I don't know. Let's WK, go with watch kit. WK, watch kit. Watch kit. Yeah. yeah. TV OS is UI kit. Yeah, yeah. correct. You got uh, it. 
AppKit so, for Mac. Did you say that one? <laughs> AppKit, AppKit, yeah. So <laughs> with this, you're just coding as those APIs, but Swift UI, different. Yeah. Um, I really appreciate what um, I forgot who was presenting. Never mind. I'm not going to give a name. But one of the presenters at the keynote said something like, "We okay, we have this new language, but we're using these old libraries, libraries designed basically for Objective-C. And as we all know, coming from a .NET C-sharp background, the languages influence the library design, the APIs, how things are expressed this way and that. And they said, maybe it's time that we have a new UI library tailored to the language, take advantage of all the features of the language, which is pretty neat because um, Swift has some awesome features to it. I think it's kind of a little bit of an ugly language, but it's it's cool because it's up there with um, Rust and Go of being mm. um, very efficiently compiled. Still not, um, I'm sorry, Go is a garbage uh, collected language, but Rust isn't. So Swift and Rust are playing kind of in this uh, interesting playground of being native compilation like that. Anyway, yes, they did a they did a whole UI thing, and I think it's really interesting um, because, like I said, it's like let's see how we can take advantage of the language. And in fact, they even changed the language a bit to make parts of this UI. I almost called it a UI kit. Can't call it that. Make part of Swift UI works. So I'm gonna. We're going to have some fun here. Let's dive into it a bit. Yeah. And I was talking to some Apple developers recently and that had been experimenting with, with Swift UI and uh, they were like, oh, it's really, it's really intriguing. And and uh, they didn't really know too much about Xamarin. And okay. I said, well, what's you, you know, they're like, I was explaining to them, well, what's unique about Xamarin is that you have UI kit, you have app kit, you have storyboards. And I go, the funny part is that when you think of cross-platform libraries, like what Xamarin Forms did, at least for iOS, Android, Windows, it says we had just abstracted, but it's still the same thing under the hood. And what Swift UI does, and everyone first came out and thought it was like a just a shim wrapper over UI kit. But it's really not necessarily that from what I'm getting is that there is a button or there is a stack or there is a label or whatever the different names of the controls are. It's a control comp. It's a whole composition frame. It's a composition <laughs> animation. It's a framework, right? Um, the difference is, is that from what I can tell and what I've read and heard is that, yes, you, like, you run that maybe on an iPhone and you may get a UI table view, but you may run that on a tvOS device and you may not get a UI table view. You might get a new implementation under the hood that makes sense for a tvOS device. So it may be something new that's not in UIKit. So it's like you're either going to get the thing underneath that could be a UIKit or an AppKit version. You don't know, right? You, you don't really care, but you might get something new that's part of Swift UI. Woo, lot said there. <laughs> so I think the comparison to Xamarin Forms is the best way to look at it because, as you said, yeah, it's doing these tricks. So sometimes labels a label, sometimes it's not, and you're really not supposed to care or know because it's a high-level UI lang um, language. I almost call it a language API, but the, it, it's written well enough. It almost seems like a language in parts. <laughs> So I think it's fun how, how we can break it down in so many ways. We can look at it. What platforms does it run on? What controls does it have? How does it do data binding? How do you specify user interfaces? How do you customize those user interfaces? So there's so much to cover when it comes to uh, like a new UI framework because it is interesting and new. So I want to start... I find it interesting, the cross-platformness, but to me, that that's, that's just hard work. Um, we know how to do cross-platform. You just write interfaces and then deal with the implementation. It's a pain, but it can be done. I think the more interesting things are the animation support, the data binding, and the editor that they came up with for it. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that, too. I mean, to me, it, it is nice that it runs on a lot of different platforms. And, you know, their their motto, though, is better apps, less code. And mm -hmm. I'm not I mean, I'm not 100 percent sure that that's what will actually happen. I mean, I would I mean, maybe less code than 
UI kit, but maybe not. I, I, I want to believe, but when I look at a very simple, like here's a list, right? There's, there's instead of UI table view, it's a list and you have this model thing, which, which we can talk about more, this different mm-hmm. pattern, but you know, you have an image and you give it an image and there's some text, but like, that's just going to give you the default stuff. Like I don't, I want to see the full examples of here is a, like, let me see the podcast app code. You know what I mean? <laughs> if that is Swift yeah. UI, which I don't know, I know it is project catalyst, but if that is a Swift UI app, I want to see it, you know? And, <laughs> and like, same thing with Xamarin forms. Like I can go in and I can write a list of data. That's a few lines of code. And we've done that's, that's what you do on a marketing site. But when you go look at real apps, you know, like here's all of the styles and all of the, you know, things that cascade on top of it and you get into the code, it is larger. And and that's always been my fear of a, I mean, I my fear in a way, a fear of a declarative UI, which I know that you're a little bit more of a fan of than me is how does that scale and how does that refactor in production? Not, you know, and, and maybe you can, you can talk a little bit more about supplementing my fears <laughs> of moving away from any XML based, right? Cause Android XML is based, you know, um, storyboards are more win formsy in a way, but you know, um, that's kind of my, that's my long-term, how does it scale? Well, I think what you're saying is, I don't, I don't know why people love those designer things, XAML and storyboards, any of that stuff. It all should just be in code. And so I'm actually a big fan of this approach. It's how I honestly write my own UIs, my own apps. And so I think the fact that they went with a code-first approach is kind of like, um, it's, a, it's a boon for me. It's like, good job, Frank. Code first, that is the right way to go. But you're right. It's not for everyone. Obviously, there are people that absolutely love separating out what the design, the declarative part of what the UI looks like versus the data backend of it. For me, I'm just trying to write apps and I don't mind mixing those layers very much, but they're definitely mixing them. Uh, we are definitely doing, you know, database access on button handlers here <laughs> a little bit. You can create abstractions on top of it, of course, but at the low level, like you said, they keep showing these trivial examples. So it's like, okay, good, nice trivial example, but how do services work? How does the event mechanism work for those? All that stuff. I'm not sure it's going to be less code either. Um, We should talk about the data binding and the animation. I think that's actually where we'll save code, but as for setting properties on a text box, no, you got to say, you got to say, you know, color and a color, you know, you just have to somewhere. Yeah, it's I could do a squiggly background color equals this color or I could do, you know, dot color equals this color. I mean, to me, it's, it doesn't seem like that much different of code. I don't quite understand in general. I mean, so let's talk about then the what you're saying is some of maybe the advantages of this declarative UI, which is perhaps the animation system and the data binding mechanism. Sure. That seems to be, if it's not less code (laughs) and maybe you prefer a, all of your code is in one file versus multiple files that that could be a a fight and battle. But you know, one thing I do struggle, I'll I'll say with, with all XML, whether it's Android or XAML that I've done in Silverlight or WPF or UWP or Xamarin forms is, is animations data binding. Sometimes like simple data binding, sometimes complex. You got to figure out weird syntax. Is it <laughs> this parent property and this binding and this thing? You know, I just want to shove it together. But so how does it how does it actually simplify that in a way or make it better or make it worse? So the the two mechanisms are combined, the binding system and the animation system. I think that's what kind of makes it comfortable from that first standpoint is that there's mm. a lot of implicit stuff that can happen, or at least if not implicit, then it's setting a property to true or saying, you know, do this thing. And then the rest is done for you. I think that's always been my complaint with the um, XAML UI frameworks, forms included, is animations were are explicit for the most part. You have to create them yourself. You have to think them through, do this and that. Whereas even in UIKit, there are a lot of implicit animations, or at least easy to do implicit animations just by wrapping something in a... Hmm in a block or something like that. I love how easy they make it. 
but they tried to make it even easier with this uh, Swift UI thing. So when you're doing your data binding updates, you can say, oh, I'm going to set this right now, but at the same time, animate it while I set it. And so you get this going on and that going on. Then perhaps you'll say this animation might take two seconds, but then what happens if the data changes in between those two seconds? Have you ever done that in one of your apps, James? You add two animations to the same control. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, yeah. 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 And then sometimes you might want you might want it to bounce a little bit, and you might want it to fade a little bit. And you might, you know, you yeah. want it to 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 cascade in a way. Yeah. And the problem is you try to put all those things together in the code, but then it's not always easy to put them together in the code. Sometimes it happens on this event handler, sometimes on that event handler. So just orchestrating all that stuff is complicated. Now, nicely, just from their architecture, which we'll get to eventually, this kind of falls out of it because they can see this animation should be active. This one just got canceled by that one. And so with just a few... Uh, they, they do that um, that chaining kind of thing where you say, you know, um, oh, create this object, set the color to blue, dot, set the tech font to this, dot, set the width to this, dot. It's kind of like that kind of chaining of doing things. Mm. Yeah, there's a good one in here, which I see is so there's an image, for instance, which uh, they have they have a few animations built up. So, I mean, it's kind of it's pretty pretty interesting. So you have an image and the idea is that you may want to rotate it 90 degrees. And then you may also want it to scale from either like one to 1.5 or something. So you can say, you know, here's my image dot rotation effect. And then in this instance that you give it a degrees and then there's like logic inside of it, which is show detail, do 90 else zero. And then the same thing for scale effect. If show detail is true, do 1.5, else do 1. And that obviously has to do with the MVU model, the state model of it, because there's a simple Boolean. So whenever you change that Boolean, it reevaluates in which that animation that applies. So you're not having to say, when the Boolean changes, go do this. It's more like a, in a weird way, like a visual state manager, which is like very verbose. <laughs> I'm not a huge visual state manager. Yeah. But in that instance, you can say, when this happens, go do this thing. But here it's kind of seems like it's cascading off of the the creation of the object or the the UI. Yeah, and I think that that's the most and I'll I'll use this word specifically powerful feature of this library is that it's saving you code. So when we were saying less code before, is it we were debating whether it was less code before? We were talking about setting up the UI. But when it comes yeah. to these more complicated interactions, you said it yourself, Visual State Manager, it's a wonderful concept. I, I have an implicit concept of it in most of my UIs because we all have different modes and different states the UI can be in. But it's just so verbose that I hate to use it and I don't remember how to use it. I don't remember the syntax. This is shorter syntax, therefore you can take advantage of it and use it more often. I think that's what excites me. I, I, I know I've mentioned in this podcast before, but it's probably been years. The thing I always feel most guilty about in my iOS apps is not having enough animation. And so, because mm. it's they, they make it pretty darned easy to add animation to your apps now. And then with this, it's trivially easy if you buy into their architecture. Yeah, and I'm, I'm always curious what could like the forms team do? Because the thing is, what's, people don't know about forms, which like I always look at my own apps and I'm like, why, how come my apps don't have more animations? And then I'll see like Kim do something or um, like Brandon will create an app and there's all these animations, mm -hmm. you know, in it and in forms that I'm like, why, you know, how come, because they're just like, well, you know, I just think about being okay with putting like different kind of go-to statements almost in a way like the apply this animation apply this grouping of animations and when you tap on something play this animation and it scales out or when this fades in go left and right but that has to happen in a different file right it's not in the file so that, that's one thing that i i I'm like i'm curious what the the teams could do there it's, it's always been a challenge for me even in android world in and inside of ios world because there's in a storyboard and then there's the code behind and then I got to I got to think about it afterwards. Uh, so that's that's something of interest. But let's talk more about the architecture and how it goes. But let's first thank our amazing sponsor and brand new sponsor this week, 
uh, for the pod are good friends over at clubhouse.io. Now, maybe you never heard of clubhouse.io, but hey, listen, are you looking for a better way to track your product and engineering backlog? We're building apps all the time. We have huge backlogs. Like, do you want a product management tool that's powerful and simple to use? Like literally, who doesn't want the power and simplicity? Then really, you should give Clubhouse a try. Now, I've been trying out Clubhouse, really super cool thing. It's really just software um, and product management designed for software engineers and software teams. Like you're an engineer, you want to manage your product and your backlog. This thing is built for you. And what's really nice, though, is that not only do you get kind of like your boards with like ready and development, dragging, dropping, you can set different project types. You can look at unfinished, your stories, your epics, your milestones, all the things. You can get burned down charts. You can kind of go as much or as little as you could possibly want. But the nice thing is that they also have a full REST API. Everything's there. And of course, just like anything out on the internet, there's tons of integrations to all the things that you could possibly want. Now, as a special offer for Merge Config listeners, you can get a free two-month trial. Two months for free. Go to clubhouse.io slash mergeconflict. That's it. Clubhouse.io slash mergeconflict and give them a try. And thanks to Clubhouse.io for sponsoring this week's pod. Thank you, Clubhouse. And thanks for introducing that one, James. I have to go check them out. You kept that one yeah. back from me. I didn't know about this. Secrets. That's what I do. <laughs> That's what I do. Okay, so architecture architecture baby we gotta do architecture can we finally do it so do i have to put in the show title do i need to put something about architecture and swift ui and then really whenever people see the word architecture in one of our podcast titles it's like the most popular podcast ever so swift ui architecture for developers swift ui architecture with taste <laughs> I love it. Okay. <laughs> so this is this is classic. Um let's say roughly the Swift architecture, Swift UI architecture is that functional reactive programming stuff that we've talked about before, where you're given some data and your job is to write a function that translates that data into UI. So if I have a list of monkeys, I guess. <laughs> I create a um, whatever. Um, what are those? What are they called? Oh, oh my God! I don't know. What's the Xamarin Forms vertical stack called? Stack layout. Create a stack I was, layout. I, was, I, was, I, I knew it. <laughs> I, I would wanted to let you. I wanted to let you figure that one out, Frank. Right. I could create a stack layout. I could create a bunch of sub views, some children views for it. Put some images in there, and I can write a function that generates all that. The problem is, if one of those monkeys were to ever change, it would be terribly inefficient and other problems. But to call that function again, recreate the UI, redisplay the UI, it would, it would just be bad. So their whole thing is solving that problem of, we like to be able to write that one function that generates the UI because it's so simple. It makes creating UIs very easy. You take full advantage of all the power of the programming language. But how do you actually get it to update in a object-oriented world? Yeah, that's always been the struggle. Well, in you know, in in the terms of most like apps that I build, I have some you know MVVM architecture, and things are changing, and UIs are changing, and I can do data binding back and forth to say this thing when this boolean changes then hide this thing or make it visible and then the ui just updates magically for me that's mm -hmm. like mostly what i want to do and i think of the view model as a a represent it's not a representation of like the ui stack though it's sort of it's a representation of i guess it's a representation of I guess it's the model of the view. It's the view model. It's in the name, Frank. I think um, that you're overthinking the name. Can I can I give you yeah. a higher level look at it? Yes. The way that we generally achieve data binding in forms and in .NET is we create reactive observable objects that mutate state. We are object-oriented programmers. So yes. Whether you have a view model, whether you have a model, it kind of doesn't matter. You have an object out there that has I notify property change on it, basically. It's expected that 
you'll always have that one object and its internal state will change. Its properties will change and its lists and things like that. This model, um, the way React works, the way Elmish works, Fabulous, the way SwiftUI works, is that they uh, don't have reactive objects like that. Instead, they just take a value approach to it and say, in general, when the person object, not <laughs> the person value changes, then we'll regenerate the whole UI. Whenever, mm. yeah, whenever values change, not objects, not with internal state, but just big hunking value of things. <laughs> Try not to use the word object. It's hard. Well, you have this then sort of class, if you will, of, of state for your app. And we've, we talked about MVU a little bit in the past and a bunch of reactive stuff. But you have this sort of state. And it may not, not be everything that the UI is displaying or doing or whatever. It's just like this is stateful things that mutate that the UI needs to know when to update. Is, is that accurate? Yeah, I, 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 I just, well, yes, but I think that that applies to both the reactive object-oriented world, too, um, because it's mm. that. The biggest thing here is, I probably should have used this word earlier, is immutable. These value objects don't change. They don't, Their internal state doesn't change. So if you, um, if you have a large hierarchy, a list of people, and the person has an address, and an address has a street, and the street is an object, and you want to mutate that street... In an object-oriented world, you set the property on it, and then if you're if you're if that thing is in a UI somewhere, it'll bubble up event, bubble up an event, bubble up an event. That that works pretty well. It's a tiny bit efficient if you're setting a million properties on a million things because you're going to bubble up all these events. But whatever, computers are fast. <laughs> Doesn't really matter. This model's a bit different. Um, I would have that list of people, each with an address, with a street. If I want to change a street, then I have to change that address. I have to create a new address thing. I have to create a new person person thing. I have to create a new list of people thing. I have to keep... I'm not bubbling up an event. I'm bubbling up a new data, new immutable data. It's a different tact. It's a million events versus one event. The problem is you have fine-grained control with reactive objects. But with immutable objects, it's not fine-grained because they're big and have lots of data in them. Well, I think the real difference, there's two differences I'm seeing already is that bubbling events that you're saying and how it knows how to update the UI. But you're saying that it, what I've noticed in the Swift UI code that I've seen and experienced and the fabulous code that I've seen before too, and if people don't know what fabulous is, it's sort of, it's F sharp with Xamarin forms in a React um, MVU. It's an MVU style, very similar to this of constructing UIs and, and reloading. But there's always this like one method to sort of build your UI mm -hmm. in general. And that's, the, and that's the thing where you be like, hey, like don't don't try to, other, like this is where you build it. Like this is where it goes. Mm -hmm. It's very prescriptive in a way. So you're not generating a bunch of UI in other places. Like, no, this is where it happens. And this is where you inflate it. Yes, but it's still a programming language, so you have functions, James, you, and sure. you have different oh, yeah, objects. Yeah, yeah. So, of course, it does, I worry that people are thinking you're going to throw this all into one single file. No, the whole idea here is that programming languages have abstraction; they have very powerful tools for doing algorithmic work, and so we should be using that to build our UIs, not relying on a whole different language with its own semantics and its inability to do logic and things. Anyway, um, Fabulous is actually a good comparison to Swift UI. In a lot of ways, Fabulous is um, a UI API for F Sharp. It's tailored pretty well to F Sharp to make the syntax work out very nicely in that. And it's also cross-platform. The difference is in the details, exactly how is um, that state distributed? When do things get updated? Obviously, the programming language and all that, but let's stay on the architecture side. <laughs> I think the nicest innovation that Swift UI did was they gave you a way to organize the state and decide what is a reference to some data and what is the data itself. And so their, their binding system is explicit. You say when you're binding to an object and you get a binding object back. And that's because they want to be very clear that this is not the data itself. 
This is just a, a mirror of it. Yeah. And one thing that that I've noticed in the keynote, or it was maybe it was a developer deep dive, they were talking about these bindable states and the states themselves and the mute, mutation of them. And they go, and this is something that I took back to my own project uh, when I looked at my source code, is they're like, oh, you should, you'd be really surprised of how often, or actually, sorry, not how often, but how little your objects mutate. Like, honestly, they, you have, if you looked at your entire app, like of your model, like how much of it is ever you know, mutating after you create it, you know, maybe if you're editing a person, but if you just have a list of people, that stuff is never changing. Maybe your app never changes that data. So why would you create sort of the bindable parts and pieces of it? And why, even in my code, do I have set properties that are doing <laughs> comparisons of values and doing a bunch of extra stuff? Because it's been ingrained in my head. That's what I do. But, uh, you know, if I looked at it again, I go, oh, maybe I don't need to set up this complexity on every single object unless I'm actually going to change the value. Yeah, reactive objects are kind of viral. Once you have one property that is observable, you're like, well, I might change the other. I might change the other. The problem is you don't know which ones you're ever going to change in the future. And so you end up having all that extra crud. But I appreciate what you said about how changes over time are actually minimal. This is completely how we works, my um, web UI library. When it's communicating, a Wii app is always communicating with a server, whether it's off on a different computer or whether it's a web, um, what's it called, WebAssembly thing. Mm -hmm. All it's ever doing is communicating those differences. And that's why it can work so well, because they're actually quite rare. Um, we rarely mutate our UIs once we've presented it in front of the person. And I think that's why we all just kind of at least myself, I enjoyed the idea of that's why I just want to write a function because obviously I'm just going to show it once. And yeah. darn it, it's annoying when data changes on you and you're like, ah, oh, how am I going to update this thing? Yeah. Well, there seems like there's a lot of good, but I want to talk about sort of the other trade-offs that we have here because you and I were talking before we did the pod and I said, you know, well, now the Swift ABI, the, 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 this, the archit what is the ABI? Application binary interface. And it's the binary part that makes things native in scare quotes. We, as .NET programmers, live in a glorious managed world. Managed usually means um, the fact that we use a garbage collector. But it also means that we distribute our binaries not tied to a machine. We ship IL code around to each other. And that means that we can have cross-platform libraries pretty easily. But Swift is totes a native compile all the way down language. Technically, it can go to LLVM intermediate language. We've talked about that before, but that's still a pretty low level thing. It's still kind of tied to a machine. And so we, you have this problem of Swift has to be compiled into a binary on every platform and distributed on every platform. Yeah. And I then said, okay, well, Swift has a stable ABI. And then I said, um, well, what about Swift UI? Are they distributing this as a library, like the, a, a cocoa pod, if you will? And you said, nay, they are not distributing it that way. That's not how that works, James. No, instead, uh, in classic Apple style, it's a built-in framework right down at the OS level. You need to install for yourself OS Catalina and iOS 13 if you want to be using this library. Now, I'm, I'm curious if that'll stay true forever. Like, you feel like they should backport it to older iOSs, but Apple's not really a backporting kind of company, so maybe mm -hmm. not. Well, and, you know, this happened to be sort of the the downside of Swift in the early years, which is it, it didn't, you had to ship it in your app actually for a while because well, there was no stable good. API. Like we're doing that with .NET Core now. I'm all for yeah. ship the runtime right in the app because then you're not dealing with system level stuff. That's how Xamarin works. You have the, you have the .NET runtime, you ship it with your app. It yeah. works. Uh, and that, and that, that version can use C-sharp features with it. And yeah, so I guess, that, I guess that actually then wasn't that bad because 
you know, your app, which maybe against Swift one could ship be totally fine. Yes, yeah. There's different performance issues there. Sure. But right? I think that they, they made the right decision because they knew that they were going to be changing the language quickly. So tying it down at the OS level, I, <laughs> we can talk about Microsoft history too, with .NET one and .NET two, like problems oh, with sure. tying runtimes yeah. down to the OS level. It creates issues. And so Apple was smart there, but not so much for this UI framework, though. <laughs> yeah, and I'm I'm imagining that there's things that are built into the operating system itself, just at the level of UI kit, in which um, that this stuff is needed, or or even app kit for that matter, if they're making any changes there. So it's built into it. So if you want to start this development, you're going to have to have those OSs install those betas. And then I'm imagining, though, and I, I couldn't imagine any other way of working is that if you build a Swift UI app, you can't ship it to iOS 12. It has to be an iOS 13 only feature, feature correct? Yeah, as far as I understand, I, I wish we were wrong. But when I was trying to do some Swift UI development, I had to go find, um, I had to go install Catalina and it destroyed my computer for like a few weeks. So as far as I know, yes, that's that's the price to pay, which is good and bad. Um, the good means that they did have that cross-team relationship. Like you said, if they had to change AppKit, if they had to change UIKit to make this thing run well, we already know they had to change the Swift programming language a little bit to make mm-hmm. this thing run well. So I imagine that went across to the other teams too. And that's good from an app developer's perspective that means that they're trying to deliver a better library it's also bad because as an app developer it limits the amount of people that i can distribute it to yeah i mean i i i couldn't imagine a world where you know the like even and like react native flutter xamarin they come out and they say you can only you can you can only use this on ios 13 you know, like, oh, here's 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 all these new controls. You can only use this on iOS 13. Like, I just don't think that that would be a thing because if Swift UI comes out with new controls in iOS 14, then you can only use those new controls on iOS 14. Because again, you don't backport like Android. Google got something right. They backport <laughs> all of their controls into mega libraries for better or worse. Google did something right with Android. Mm, I'm not going there. I, oh, I re- come on. Earlier when you're like, oh, I was doing animation on Android. I'm like, you can do animation on Android. Of course, it's in a compat library. It's all in a compat <laughs> library. All of the libraries, Frank. I was no? I was also thinking, um, I get upset at the Xamarin team because uh, the Xamarin Mac minimum deployment target is 10.9 now for Mac OS. And now I'm thinking, well, at least it's not 10.13 because, oh my God, at least they're at least going four back, four years, five years, whatever. There you go. Back compat. It's hard. No one wants to do it. So I guess I should stop being grumpy when people force me to move on with versions. <laughs> well, and so the the longevity of, of it is if you're going to create a new app now, I don't think you can use it. Um, right. What are you talking about? Swift UI? If, if, I mean, Swift UI. Like if you, okay, so I would here do is it. the always you would do it now and only target iOS 13? Yeah, iOS has enough uptake that if your app is going to be at all successful, there's enough people running iOS 13 or will be that you'll be fine. So 100% new app, I, I would do it, especially because I don't know if we've been clear. It's good. They did a great job yeah. with oh, this yeah, yeah, library. Yeah. I, we, I don't think we've praised it enough. Um, it is far better than programming UIKit. UIKit is not the nicest thing on the planet. Well, it's going to have to come down to your business requirements. And this is sort of the integral part, right? So right. we still have, I still have developers in my libraries asking for iOS 9 support exactly. for iPad 2. Right. So different, demo, right. Are you going to a consumer market or are you trying to satisfy businesses that won't upgrade or users that won't upgrade? It really depends on your market. And that's the reason I have back compat too, back to 10.9, because I have stats showing that people with older OSs are using my apps. Yeah, I see devices that are not getting updates, right? And is iOS 13, iPhone 5, I don't think is getting iOS 13. I think 5S is. 
Uh, that would make sense because you want a 64-bit one at least. I'm surprised they're still doing the 5S. That's that's getting old, that one too. It's, it's getting up there. So, I mean, there are the trade-offs there. So, I mean, this is the same problem I think that the Swift stuff had for a while. Like, you took the trade-off of the app size versus whatever, and that a lot of people were like, oh, I'm going to stick with Objective-C for a while, and then I'm going to start mingling, and then I'm going to go all in, right? And it's the same thing we see with basically anything and that's new and that's everything is new and shiny and awesome right like everyone's like i'm gonna do dotnet core and then like all right now we're at dotnet core two and then three like okay now we're all in right it just it takes some time to move along but it is fun to play with things while while they're brand new and shiny i guess yeah absolutely and you can't write i'm sorry you can write tons you could probably write 80 percent of all apps in this thing right now but the kind of apps i write i can't write in it so I won't actually get too many advantages from using something like Swift UI because I do graphical apps that have a lot of touchy kind of interactive things that happen. And so there, there's still going to be time. You know, we don't have SceneKit running on there. You don't have any 3D engines built into it. So it's, it's a baby framework, but it's really fantastic out of the gate. And honestly, I'm a little bit jealous of all the Swift people getting to take advantage of it. So good job, and, Apple. And, yeah, and as people explore with it, and I see it, it's, it's again, it'll be when it comes out f- fully, like if people will be able to take advantage of it and build the things they want to build. And that's always any problem of anything new is yeah. it, it has this is what it does. And then, you know, developers, a.k.a. us, I would like everything, please. Can I just have everything right now? Give it to me. Yeah. So. Uh, uh, that's what I'll see. I'll be interested in. Yeah. And, and rumor on the street is that Apple is going forward with this thing. This is not some baby pet project or anything like that. They're serious. They're hoping that this will be used They're We've mentioned this on the last episode. They're trying to unify their platforms from the watch to the phone, to the pad, to the, what are they going to have an ankle bracelet or something next year? You think? <laughs> Everything. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and, and the funny part and the best part, not even funny part, the best part is that this will, this will maybe whether it was declarative or not, this will get rid finally of the one thing that I absolutely hate about iOS, Mac watch and tvOS development storyboards. Yes, they are the worst. Yes, they I are got it. literally yes. the worst thing ever created. I hate all of them. But they're XML. I mean, they're, <laughs> no, no, they're not XML. They are XML, but they're not XML. If you're going to make it XML, make it XML. I'll be very happy. But the the when when nibs, I'm, yeah, all these new developers don't even know what nibs are. Those zip files, <laughs> those nib files came out. It was it was like you know we've always mentioned because we're old timers now at this point. My 3.5 iPhone with 480 by 320. When I was developing for these, it was amazing. You know, it's just like, here it is. So that was a little bit okay. And then all of a sudden, as as things progressed, and now we're worried about all the different resolutions, the notches, the iPad OSs, the split screens, and like the, what is that thing called for the different screen sizings? Oh, Oh, I know what you mean. And now you made me forget it because you didn't know it. But size classes, and size classes, oh, those things, you know, yeah, oh, terrible. It's all good, man. I, I, I've been, I've been writing some new apps. It's good. <laughs> Feels good. Um, Feels I, good. I updated an old app. Felt good. Um, I love, I love UI frameworks. I, you know, my favorite old one was Shoes from Ruby. I, I love these things, and so I'm just excited by all this. And I hope that uh, we'll steal some ideas from them for our UI frameworks. Yeah, I like as things evolve. Now, I will say this before we get out of here. Here, I was listening to this podcast. I'll put it in the show notes. If you have three hours to kill, listen <laughs> to this, this talk show episode. That's any. That's basically any talk show episode, by the way. Um, I've now moved, by the way, to 1.2x on my podcast player. Ooh. Up from 1.1. Pretty excited about it. I was a two to three person for a time. That's impossible. I don't know how you can train yourself. It's fun. (laughs) Trained a neural network. Uh, (laughs) So I will say one thing that I didn't know that happened that is inside of the, I guess it's new iPad OS slash the new Mac OS is a feature called sidecar. Now I know sidecar already sidecar. You can take a Mac and it extends your Mac OS or an iPad and extends your Mac OS. But did you know 
that when you do that, it will put your touch bar onto your Mac or onto your iPad screen. Touch bar? You mean I'm finally going to have to start writing touch bar support into my apps? That's insane. Yes. I've been completely ignoring that piece of technology forever. Uh, darn it. <laughs> yeah, I'm... so like they, they, were, they were saying they'll, they'll put the touch bar onto your iPad. Now, the funny part is that iPad is not a touch screen, so you can't touch it when it's in sidecar mode, but you can use an Apple Pencil to interact with it as a mouse. I'm so confused. You're joking. That last no, bit about the touching—that's not a joke. Yeah. Oh my that's god. Not a joke. Okay. But you would think that they would. What the best part would be is like if if it because a Mac is not a touchscreen device, but it would be. I don't. They said they didn't do it, but I'd imagine the Touch Bar. It's in the name. But here's what's really cool about this. Okay. If you build an app and you build Touch Bar support for it. And your users are using like a MacBook or a MacBook Air or something that doesn't have a touch bar. And they use Sidecar. Your touch bar shows up on the iPad still. I love it. I can't wait. I'm sidecarring everything. I'm so sad, though, because I've totally avoided programming for it. I I, I guess I read the docs once, but I never implemented any code. (laughs) You got to do it. All right. Well, anything else from you on this? We've gone way too long. No, and I'm sure we'll be talking about it over the next couple of years. I I mean, you should start using it at SwiftUI version 2. Skip the first version. It's always the roughest. (laughs) If you're a Swift developer. (laughs) Oh, we didn't didn't talk about the editor at all. That's a super hot editor, but we'll talk about it some other time or... We'll just make allusions to it. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks everyone for sticking with us in this uh, conversation today. I'm excited about stuff. I love when things evolve and things change. It just drives, you know, ideas more than anything. Um, So yeah, we'll see what you can do with your Wii uh, application and then you can make it all crazy and declarative and awesome. Yeah. Declarative and awesome. I'm running my app like that right now. It's going well. I'll let you know in a few weeks. (laughs) I've seen, I've seen, I've seen continuous. So I know how you build your apps, Frank. It's crazy. So, uh, (laughs) all right. Well, thanks everyone for sticking in with us. Of course, you can find us everywhere on the internet at James Montemagno at Proclarum. The podcast is at Merge Conflict FM. You can also go to mergeconflict.fm. You can subscribe. You can do all the things. You can check out show notes. You can click on the things. You can rate us in Apple Podcasts. We would love that. And if you're already on what what is the new version of mac os called not catalyst but also katana catalina catalina if you're on that you can use the new podcast app and rate us from your mac now how cool is that frank i love that it's an ipad app running on the mac the future is now all right that's gonna do it for this week's podcast until next time i'm james montemagno and i'm frank krueger thanks for listening peace